I will pick up reading for the lesson of the day in James chapter 3, verse 7. Here again, God's Word. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Father, your word shows us there are two ways we can use our words, two ways we can use our tongues and our mouths. Father, we pray that we would bring forth good fruit, that our mouths may be streams of fresh water, that they may bring life and blessing. Father, we pray that you would work in us, indeed transform us now as your word goes forth. We pray that your word might go forth with power as you have promised that it would not return to you void but that it would come into our lives and change us, making us more like Christ Jesus, the Savior, our pattern. And this we pray in His name. Amen. Studies show that the average man speaks 7,000 words per day, which men, what that means is, your mouth produces the equivalent of a small book each week. Ladies, studies show that you speak 20,000 words per day on average, which means your mouth produces a rather large book every week. All of us are talking a whole lot. Uh, You could say all of us are publishing 52 books a year from the printing press of our mouths. But the main issue we have to address here is not the quantity of our words, it's The quality. What are we saying? What are we doing with our words? Do our words make the world a better place? Do our words have the right mix of truth, love, courage, kindness, and wisdom? It's likely, as James says here, that we all stumble many ways, including stumbling in our speech. Uh, The comedian Bill Murray once said, the leading cause of failed relationships is opening your mouth and letting words come out. And I think that's all too true. Sad, I mean, it's funny, but it's sadly true. There is a lot at stake in how we speak, which is why David in Psalm 143 prayed, Lord, set a guard over my mouth and keep watch over the door of my lips. David knew he could not control his speech on his own. He could not control his tongue on his own. So he asked God for grace. He asked God to help him. He asked God to control his speech. He asked God to put a guard or a filter over his mouth. We sometimes say talk is cheap. And that's because we know words without action don't amount to much. That's certainly correct. Our words don't mean a whole lot unless there are deeds to go with them. Our words and our deeds have to align. But at the same time we say talk is cheap, We've also got to say, words can be very costly. They can be very costly on their own. Poorly chosen words, false words, foolish words can do all kinds of damage and cost us a great deal. 
In fact, I would guess we all know from experience that one wrong word, one harsh or unkind word can do more damage than 1,000 words, good words can do good. Uh, it's just kind of that way. It's easier to tear down than to build up with our words. At the same time, we've got to, we've got to acknowledge we can do good with our words. Words can be very, very valuable. Fitly chosen words, words of wisdom, uh, words of truth, words of kindness and encouragement are incredibly valuable. They're incredibly valuable. They are uh, worth more than gold. Such words have great value because they bestow true riches on those who hear them. Further, we can say our words contain great power. Great power for good or for ill. Our words have incredible power. And this is because we are made in the image of a God whose power is found in His Word. God's Word is His power. You see that in Genesis 1, the creation account. How does God create? God spoke the world into existence. God said, let there be light. And there was light. The spoken Word of God is powerful. God's Word is His self-revelation. John 1 shows us God's Word is His Son. God has never been without His Word. God is an eternal speaker. And as we read in Isaiah 55 this morning, God's Word never returns void. His Word always accomplishes its purpose. Because God's Word has power and because we are made in God's image, our words have power as well. Our words are also powerful. God speaks. And so we are speakers. God does things with words. And so because we bear His image, we do things with words as well. God creates and shapes with words. Our words create and shape as well. But again, this raises the question, how do we use our words? How much of what you say is really worth saying? Are your words good and true and beautiful? Do our words create and shape loving communities or do they do the opposite? Proverbs 18.21 tells us death and life are in the power of the tongue. There are two ways to use the tongue. Two ways. Words move the world. Because of words, wars have been fought. Because of words, wars have come to an end. With words we marry, and with words we destroy marriage. Words have spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, bringing salvation to sinners. And words have also spread destructive heresies and idolatries leading many to hell. Words can comfort or words can wound. Like a fire, words can bring warmth and light into the world. Or like a fire, words can turn everything around us into ashes. Words can bring peace or words can incite violence. Words can build community or destroy community. Words can help people or harm them. And so the question is, what is coming out of your mouth? How are you using your tongue? Do you use your mouth to bring life or to bring death? Now again, all of us struggle with speech. I know I certainly do. And James seems to indicate that uh, we're, we're going to, all of us stumble in many ways when it comes to our speech. But for this very reason, James 3 is exactly what we need. James, as a wise apostle, pastor, knows what he's doing. Now, as we saw last time, this section, James 3, 1-12, is especially directed to teachers in the church, to pastors and would-be pastors. 
And obviously that's because teachers speak constantly. Teachers are those who make a living by speaking. And James wants you to see that's a dangerous thing to do because teachers are constantly talking. Teachers need to be especially careful how they speak, how they teach. James says not many should seek to become teachers because we will be judged more strictly. I think that means that uh, on the one hand, teachers will be subject to harsher punishments if they are unfaithful to their charge to teach. I think it also suggests teachers will be held to a higher standard. They've got special responsibilities. If the teacher stumbles in word, he's going to lead others astray. He's going to steer them in the wrong direction. So his words have huge implications, not just for himself, but for others. But James indicates a mature teacher that is, a man who does not stumble in his teaching, can guide the whole body of the church into righteousness. If the teacher masters God's Word and speaks it to the congregation, the congregation can master God's Word as well and be mastered by God's Word as He preaches and teaches. And the whole congregation, the whole body, can be led into greater faithfulness. Herman Melville famously said, the pulpit is the prow of the world. The pulpit is the world's prow. The pulpit is the rudder that steers the ship. And of course, he picked up that imagery from James. Rudders are small, as James points out. They're a small part of the ship, but they can steer the whole thing. You have this huge ship with a tiny little rudder, and the rudder controls the direction it goes. In the same way, the tongue is small, but it can direct a whole community. Uh, One, uh, it's interesting to think about this. I looked this up. On a big ship, the rudder is usually less than one-tenth of one percent of the ship's weight. Or if you want to think about this in human terms, for the average person, the tongue is less than five one-hundredths of a percent of a person's body weight. The point is that James shows us here, the tongue is very, very small, but very, very powerful. The tongue has a disproportionate power given its size. Again, think about what words can do. Your words can be tools to build up or weapons to destroy. While James is focusing on teachers in the church here, what he says applies more generally to Christians. It certainly applies to Uh, all of us in those areas of life where we have authority over others. Uh, So I want you to think about this for just a moment. Most of us have or will have a sphere of authority where our words carry special weight. Kind of like the words of the teacher carry special weight in the congregation. You'll have an area of life where your words carry special weight. It may be as a parent with your children. Think about the incredible weight that your words have with your child to build up your child in Christ, to encourage him, to correct him, to nurture him, or, or to essentially destroy your child, to rip him to pieces with your words. It may be at work with people you manage, people you oversee, or with customers. It may be as a school teacher with a class. Virtually all of us have or will have areas in our lives where our words are especially powerful. And James would say to us in those areas of life, we must especially guard ourselves against stumbling in speech because the implications are so great. James would say we must become mature persons, the self-controlled persons God wants us to be. 
But more generally, I would say what James says about the tongue here applies to all of us and all of our speech in every context in life. What James says here about the tongue applies to all of us and all of our speech in all of life. Now, it's really interesting to think about this. The part of the Bible that has the most to teach us about the tongue is what we call the wisdom literature. Books like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. But it's especially the book of Proverbs. Now, we've already seen, actually, that James is a kind of New Covenant Proverbs. James is wisdom literature. This falls right in with that other wisdom literature in the Scripture. And one way we know this, one way we see this, is the maturity theme that is woven all throughout James' letter. If you had to sum up the book of James in one word, that would be it. Maturity. It's all about the maturation of God's people. God's people growing into maturity. He wants us to display. He wants us to demonstrate. Wisdom is all about maturity. Maturity and wisdom go together. That's obvious. We're supposed to grow in wisdom and growing in wisdom is a sign of maturity. Uh, James here in verse 2 says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says in his speech, he says that uh, he is a perfect man. If you don't stumble in this way, if you don't stumble in your speech, you have become a mature Man, what James is saying here is that you can gauge someone's maturity level by their speech. James is saying, this is the manifestation of our maturity. It's how we talk. Your speech is the, the, the most obvious way to see where you are on the scale of Christian maturity. Now, James has already shown us how God uses trials to grow us in wisdom, that is, to make us mature. How, as we pass through trials, we're brought to perfection, we're brought to maturity. James has already shown us that God uses His Word, the Bible, uh, that is what he calls the perfect law of liberty, the mature law of liberty, to grow us up into maturity. God uses His perfect Word to make us perfect. Now James is showing us the fruit of this maturity, or the lack of this maturity, will be seen in our speech. What we think or what we allow ourselves to think will eventually come out of our mouths. Understand it. What comes out of your mouth is what is in your heart. Your speech is a revelation of who and what you are. It's as if your words are a kind of window onto your heart that, that show us what's really there. Because what's inside in your heart comes out in your speech. And of course, Jesus taught the same thing. We see this in Matthew chapter 12. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so, for example, a wise and gracious heart will produce wise and gracious speech. If you have a wise and gracious heart, that, those kinds of words will flow out of your heart. Speech reveals our true character. You'll be known by your fruits. And the fruits here are the words that you speak. Those words that go out in the public show, you know, those words that come outside show what's going on inside. Public fruit reveals the private root. Your character does not stay hidden. It is revealed in your speech. And so we can say a foolish heart produces the wrong word at the wrong time. A foolish heart produces foolish speech. A critical self-righteous heart produces critical and self-righteous words. An arrogant heart produces proud words. A bitter heart produces hateful words. A despairing heart produces words of cynicism 
A discontented heart produces grumbling words. A peaceful heart produces peaceful words. Kind hearts produce kind and gracious and encouraging words. Humble hearts produce words that exalt and glorify others, that show true humility, that demonstrate that humility. Godly words produce words of praise to our God. Hearts soaked in Scripture produce words that echo God's own Word. See, the heart moves the tongue and the tongue reveals the heart. If we are wise, our words will be timely and well chosen. Our words will be an application of God's Word. Again, a kind of echo of God's Word. You can think of your words as a kind of toolbox. You know, a well-stocked toolbox is going to have all different kinds of tools in it suited to different occasions, different needs. And so you'll have a hammer and a screwdriver and a and a ratchet and so forth. Well, so it is with our words. We've got all different kinds of words we could speak. And if you're a wise person, you're going to have all different kinds of tools in your toolbox of speech, and you'll know when to bring out which tool. And so you'll have words of cheer for the downcast, words of warning for the drifting, soft answers to turn away wrath, words of correction to help the erring, words of encouragement for the hurting. See, wisdom is knowing which tool, which kind of word to use and when to use it and how to use it. If you are wise, if you're mature, if you're perfect in your speech, you will match your words to the needs of the moment. You will match your words to the needs of the situation. You'll fit your words to the situation and the needs of the person. That's what mature speech looks like. That's what James is driving us towards. But there's another way we see that James here is giving us wisdom literature. There's another wisdom element. And it's not just that James is uh, driving us towards maturity, towards wisdom. But James writes in such a way that his letter is full of Proverbs. Little proverbial sayings, pithy proverbial statements that really sum things up. That's what a proverb does. Uh, We know from the book of Proverbs, Proverbs... Uh, are little nuggets of wisdom, little ways of encapsulating a principle, usually in very colorful language. And the style of James' letter shows us he's writing wisdom literature. He's very self-conscious about what he's doing. In fact, there are many sections in this letter that close with some kind of proverb, and certainly that's true here. If you jump down to how this whole section ends in verses 11 and 12, he gives three little proverbs there that really summarize what he's saying. Three proverbs put in the form of a question, proverbial questions. Does a spring produce fresh and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? No spring yields both salt water and fresh water. James here is showing us the duality of the tongue with each one of those questions. A a, a tongue is either going to produce fresh water or bitter water, one or the other. What kind of water is going to flow out of your mouth? healing, healthy water, or toxic water? He asks, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? You can only bear fruit based on what kind of person you are. The kind of fruit you bear shows what you are. Again, this is just echoing Jesus in Matthew chapter 12. And again, then the final one, no spring yields both salt water and fresh water. James is showing us the duality of the tongue. It's just like what is taught about the tongue in the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs does the exact same thing 
when it teaches about the tongue. Let me give you a few examples of this, just so you can see the duality of the tongue in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 15.4 A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverse speech breaks the spirit. See, two ways to use the tongue as a tree of life or to break the spirits of others. To give life or to take life. To build up or to crush. Proverbs 15.1 A soft answer turns away wrath. That's one side. But another way to use the tongue, a harsh word stirs up anger. Two ways to use the tongue. Proverbs 13.3 Whoever guards his mouth saves his life, but he who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Proverbs 10.19 When words are many, sin is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. So there's this contrast. Two different ways of using the tongue. Solomon teaches there are two ways to use the tongue. The wise way, the righteous way, and the sinful, foolish way. James makes the same point. And just as an aside, Jesus makes the same point in Matthew chapter 12 when he talks about the, the, the fruit. The, um, our words as fruit that show what kind of tree we are. There are two ways of speaking. We can use the tongue to bless or curse. The problem James indicates here is all too often we use the same tongue to do both. That's what verses 9 and 10 are about. With the tongue we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the image of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. James is saying this is our foolishness. To use our mouth in contradictory ways. So the same mouth blesses and curses. He's saying we lack integrity. We lack consistency in how we use the tongue. Now he's indicating here, one thing we really need to understand is that if we curse another human, if we curse another who is made in God's image, we're cursing God Himself. To curse God's image is to curse God. To verbally attack a son or daughter of God is to attack God Himself. We shouldn't use our speech that way. And to use our speech some of the time to bless God, worshiping God, and then to turn around and use the same tongue to curse those who are made in God's image, that is a contradiction. And yet James is right. We do this kind of thing all the time. Indeed, I would guess many of us are going to do it today. We gather here to sing God's praises. This morning we've gathered to sing God's praises and to bless God in prayer. But after the service we can turn around and gossip about one another. We gather here to sing God's praises in the service and then we get in the car to drive home and we snap at one another in anger. We'll sing God's praises here this morning. Go home and sit down at the table and grumble. We'll complain about what's for lunch. Blessing and cursing coming out of the same mouth. We use our tongues to praise God, to, to pray, to give God thanks. And then we turn around and use our tongues to slander, to flatter, to tell coarse jokes, to curse. We confess the truth here in church and then we turn around and tell lies with the same tongue. We speak words of grace here, then we turn around and speak words of bitterness out there. Brothers, this ought not to be. It ought not to be this way. Our tongues cannot serve two masters. Your tongue cannot serve God and Satan. Your tongue cannot produce 
fresh water and poison. Your tongue cannot give life and bring death at the same time. Your tongue cannot burn with the fires of hell and also with the flames of Pentecost, with the fire of the Holy Spirit at the same time. It's got to be one fire or the other. You cannot speak the language of hell and the language of heaven at the same time with the same tongue. The tongue must not be used to help and hurt, to heal and harm, to bless and curse. Streams of poison and rivers of life cannot flow from the same mouth. It's as if James says, make up your mind how you're going to talk. Make up your mind how you're going to speak. But when James says we do this, we want to have it both ways, he's exactly right. All too often, we have forked tongues, hypocritical tongues, tongues that are a contradiction, foolish tongues that try to have it both ways. We make our tongues instruments of godliness and we make our tongues instruments of evil. Certainly we should think before we speak. That's why Solomon and James both say we should be slow to speak. And we should think after we speak, measuring what has been said against God's standard, checking to see if our words have been wisely filtered, if we have used our words appropriately. Only in this way can we speak with integrity. Only in this way can we speak fruitfully and consistently and truthfully and encouragingly and kindly and graciously. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only what is good for building others up as fits the occasion that you may give grace to those. Do your words communicate grace? If there's grace in your heart, you'll communicate grace in your words. If your heart is corrupt, your words are going to corrupt others. Paul says, let only what is good for the building up of others come out of your mouth. Give grace to those who hear you. That is a wonderful summary of what wise speech is all about. Solomon and James and Paul and Jesus all agree. But James does not just rely on Proverbs and its wisdom themes to teach us about the tongue. He actually goes all the way back to Genesis as well to develop his teaching on the tongue. And you really see that starting in verse 7. James goes back to the creation account. And as we've already seen echoes of that with man being made in the image of God and all that. But there's something else here that's really important. Go back to Genesis 1. What do you find? God made man male and female in his image and likeness. And then God gave man what we call the dominion mandate. He said, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God commanded man to have dominion over the creation, to rule it and subdue it. God gives the whole creation to man as his domain to rule over. And James says, you know what? Man has largely done this. Man has taken dominion over the creation. Indeed, man has tamed the beasts. Every kind of beast, James says, every kind of bird and reptile and creature of the sea has been tamed by mankind. They didn't even have SeaWorld in James' day, but he's already saying even the Creatures of the sea have been tamed. In other words, James says, man has been very busy fulfilling the dominion mandate. 
We have tamed a lot of different kinds of creatures. We've harnessed their power and we've used their power. we found ways to subdue these creatures and use their power for our good. In fact, I think it's really interesting. James here mentions reptiles. Even reptiles have been tamed. Reptiles are not mentioned specifically as one of the categories in Genesis chapter 1, but James includes that category here. And that's very interesting because remember what happens in Genesis chapter 3. A reptile, a snake, becomes a mouthpiece of Satan. Satan uses a serpent, a reptile, as his mouthpiece. James says even the reptiles have been tamed. This is the extent of man's dominion. But then look at what he says in verse 8. No man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. We have tamed unruly beasts. We have tamed even poisonous beasts. Deadly beasts. But we cannot tame our tongue. James wants us to see the irony. We tame the beasts. We cannot tame ourselves. And then this is the point I think James really wants us to see. This is the point he's making. True dominion, the, the real dominion God calls us to, true dominion starts with self-dominion. True subduing starts with subduing the self. Ruling over the creation starts with ruling yourself. You have to rule yourself first. If you do not master yourself, if you do not control yourself, your dominion over the world is but a shadow of what it ought to be. Oh yes, James says, you can tame huge beasts. And indeed, you can build skyscrapers and airplanes. And you can put a man on the moon. But unless you subdue your tongue, that little piece of flesh in your mouth, all your other ruling and subduing is for naught. That's what James is saying. Rule yourself first. Or as that secular prophet Jordan Peterson would say, fix yourself first. Take responsibility for yourself. Rule over yourself first. All other true rule flows out of that. It flows out of self-rule. The first form of government is self-government. The first form of dominion is dominion over the self. But James says this is what we have failed to do. Man can reign in the killer whales, but it'd be better to reign in our killer tongues. We can train bears for the circus, it'd be better to train our tongues. We can tame the eagles, but what we really need to do is tame our sinful desires and our sinful speech. Dominion starts with you. Dominion starts with your self-rule, your self-mastery, your self-control. And again, think about this. James is reflecting on the whole creation account and the account of the fall in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So much rich theology there to think about. In Genesis 3, the man and the woman sin. Why? Well, the serpent speaks to them. The serpent becomes a kind of false teacher a false prophet, the serpent speaks words that are full of lies and flattery. And Adam stands by and watches as the serpent deceives his bride. He fails to interrupt the serpent. He stays silent when he should be speaking. He fails to interrupt the serpent with the truth. And then after the man and woman have sinned and God comes to them, Adam then uses his tongue to blame the woman. Instead of using his tongue to confess his sin, he uses his tongue to pass the blame. 
Adam becomes a liar because he now follows Satan who is the father of lies. And so in the face of this, our only hope is, of course, the grace of God. Our only hope is the grace of God. And how does the grace of God come to us to forgive our sinful speech and to transform how we use our tongues? Well, the grace of God comes to us in the Word made flesh. We have followed the wrong Word, and so now God sends us the right Word, the Word who is Himself, the Word who is the Son of the Father, the eternal Word of the Father, comes to us in flesh. And the eternal Word of the Father dies on the cross for our sins. He is silent as a lamb before His shears. He comes to us and He speaks only what is true and what is gracious. He is wisdom incarnate. And all His words are a revelation of divine wisdom. And through this Word made flesh, our sins of speech are forgiven and our tongues are transformed so we too can speak words of grace and truth. So we can become like the Word made flesh. So we can become living embodiments of God. We can become God's Word to the world by how we live our lives. A sort of living epistle, as the Apostle Paul says, embodying God's truth and God's wisdom in how we live, and of course that includes how we speak. That's the good news. Now let me close with uh, a few random notes here. I didn't quite know where to fit these things in, so I'm just going to tack them on to the end. Uh, But I think they are also important. If talking is so dangerous, you might think, well, maybe I should just stay silent. You know, Maybe those monks who took a a vow of silence were on to something. Maybe I shouldn't say anything at all. Well, maybe yes. Maybe sometimes that is the right thing to do. You know, it's been said, seldom do those who are silent make a mistake. The less you say, the less you have to take back. Or, you know, the old saying, uh, better to stay quiet and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and prove it. Which, that's basically a paraphrase of Proverbs 17.28. But you need to understand, silence can be just as unfaithful as saying the wrong thing. Sometimes, indeed many times, we are required to speak, especially in contexts where we are leaders, but all of us are required to speak. And so Martin Luther said, you are not only responsible for what you say, but for what you do not say. Again, think of Adam in the garden, silently standing by when he should have spoken. What is he supposed to do? He should speak up in that context. And there are times where we should speak up. Our big problem is speaking when we shouldn't and staying silent when we should speak. We get it exactly backwards. But don't think that silence is some way out. It's not. We have to train our tongue to speak rightly, to speak wisely. Another note here, I've focused really entirely on speech. But all of this teaching also applies to other ways we use words, other forms of communication. So it applies to the spoken words we've talked about here today, but it also applies to what we write. The tongue is a fire, but the keyboard is a fire too. The tongue is hard to tame. The text message is hard to tame also. Our dominion over the creation has given us Facebook and Twitter and email, but do we know how to use them wisely? We have subdued various aspects of the creation that allow us to create laptops. We have subdued the earth in such a way that we can build a laptop, but have we subdued the fingers that type on it? 
all of this applies to written forms of communication as well. And then finally, remember this. In James' context, the church's teachers are in danger of stumbling by speaking words of anger against the church's persecutors. And perhaps even inciting Christians to violence, to a kind of unholy violence, striking out against their persecutors. Now today, in our context, we're not being persecuted, but we do live in a very divided culture, a culture that is full of outrage, a culture that is full of angry words, a culture that is increasingly hostile to us. I mean, the one category of people you can still really make fun of are Christians. Uh, So what do we do? Well, we need to understand that especially in our political discourse, where angry speech has become the norm, we need to live a different way. If there are two ways to use the tongue and we see the culture using it in this angry, outraged kind of way, we need to take a different path. What would James say to us today? Well, there in that context, he warned them about tirades and words of wrath. He warns about using words to incite violence. Indeed, in the next section of the letter, he's going to go on to talk about wisdom and he's going to draw a contrast between heavenly wisdom and the speech it produces. Heavenly wisdom is pure, peaceable, and gentle. It produces words that lead to peace. And he's going to contrast that with demonic wisdom and the speech this demonic wisdom produces, which he describes as bitterness envy, and vain ambition. So those things characterize our culture very much right at the moment. And he goes on to say this demonic wisdom and the words that go with it lead to disorder, to chaos, to every evil thing. James doesn't want us fighting fire with fire in the culture. Or perhaps he does want us to fight fire with fire, but he wants us to fight hellfire with the spiritual fire, the fire of Pentecost, the tongues of fire that came and rested on the disciples. He wants us to speak like Jesus spoke. He wants us to show joy and love and mercy and kindness and forgiveness in our words. And yes, there are times to use harsh speech. We see Jesus doing that, but they're very limited. And you need to know for sure this is a time when that kind of word is appropriate before you use it. God calls us to speak the truth in love, to speak words of peace to speak words of wisdom. That doesn't mean we're going to be persuasive in our culture necessarily. It doesn't mean that our influence is going to prevail in the culture. But it does mean this. When when God's people speak God's truth in God's love, those words do not return void. That's the way God wants us to speak. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that You would help us to speak only what is useful for building up others around us. May we communicate grace to others through our words. May our words carry great value because they're full of wisdom. May they have great power to shape and form a community. To shape and form relationships of love and honesty and integrity. May our words be spoken with power. May our words change the world for the better. Father, we pray that You would put a guard over our mouth, that You would watch over the door of our lips, that we might speak only what is pleasing to You. This we pray through the Word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.